What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Yala. Ba-ba-ba. Your thrice weekly podcast where we talk about the hottest news and some very interesting people with a touch of what, Terrence? Good old humor. Good old humor, man. Yeah. This, is, uh, this is another interesting episode. We have a very special guest today mm. who's in the space of fitness and wellness, mm. uh, which which is quite a common theme uh, for our recent podcast. Uh, Aside think, from the elections. Uh. Oh, yeah, yeah. That one also about fitness and wellness, yeah, right? yeah. meditation and everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah correct. But yes, yes, yes. Correct. Digress. Uh, so, yeah, uh, we'd like to say a big hello to co-founder of Ritual Gym, uh, Ian Tan, who is sitting right in front of us. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us, man. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having What's me. What's up, Ian? Yeah. Yeah. So, Did you, um, before we start, like, have you worked out? Today already before coming no, here. but I got in an ice bath. Oh, uh, an ice you bath. Got in an ice bath mm. in the morning. Yeah, it was lit- literally like ten oh, something oh, in the morning, shit. and he's already done an ice bath. How come? Uh, is that part of the daily ritual? Yeah, so it's it's part of my daily ritual because it helps for me. It helps me calm my nerves if I wake up with a bit of anxiety. Yeah, mm. helps me most with that. I thought when Terence asked you that question, you're going to be like, "Dude, don't just assume that because I run a gym, I exercise every morning." But then you hit us with something that's even more. High level. Oh, cool. No, yeah. but that's the thing though. Yeah, people do expect that I'm like some super fitness freak just because I run a gym. Mm. Yeah, it's not It's not the reality. Not anymore at least. Mm. Uh, mm. Mm. But isn't an ice bath like uh, hardly relaxing? It's like really tingly for your... Yeah, that's part of it, right? Like, it's yeah. super intense yeah. for a short period of time. And then after that, your nervous system is like, okay, now I can chill. Oh, for mm. real. Yeah, so it kind of lasts the rest of the day. But how do you prepare it every morning? Like, yeah. you do it at home, like, you just open your fridge and take out the it's ice. It's <laughs> actually super anyhow how I do it. Oh, really? Um, a few years ago, I bought a second-hand freezer uh-huh. on, car- on carousel, like yeah. one of those chest freezers. Yeah. Um, and Oh, you uh, mean the one that is you horizontal mm-hmm. and you open mm-hmm. up yeah, the door? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did the poor, man, poor man's version of the ice bath. Uh-huh. And um, I fill it with water and fill it with ice. And then uh, that water lasts me a few weeks. Uh, and I just, every day I turn it on for a couple of hours and it stays freezing cold. Oh. Yeah, so I put a chlorine tablet in there to okay. keep it clean. But every few weeks I change out the water. So, oh. so that means the night before what, you turn it on or something? The morning off. The morning off. So I wake up can, quite early and then uh, I leave it on for an hour and a half, two hours. And then um, and then you go into the ice bath. Get, yeah. Uh, well, you go turn into it, turn the it off first. You, go, you <laughs> jump into the freezer. You jump into the freezer, yes. basically. Yes. Because oh. I was going to say, isn't there some concern of like the electric electricity? You know, I, I totally understand. It's a bit ridiculous of a thing to do. I totally understand. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I thought you were doing it in a bathtub or something, but you're doing it in the freezer. Yeah, That's... because my my question also was like, how many times do you have to go to the fridge and come back to your mm. bathtub and all? But no, you have a freezer. Oh, so that makes so, sense. So I mean, like, how early is early when you wake up? I wake up about seven, okay, and okay. then I turn it on, mm. and I hang out with my daughter, hang out with my wife for a while, mm. um, and then I get in about nine. Okay. Nine, and by then the temperature is like what? It actually, because it's a freezer and there's insulation, it stays pretty cold uh, even if I don't turn it on for a day or so. Mm. Oh, yeah. I see. But I see. the ice would have all like melted. It would be water. Yeah, I have it around like four to eight degrees. Uh-huh. So sometimes if I leave it on too long, there's like ice chips floating around. Um, oh, but usually I keep it just above that temperature where there's, there's ice chips. And then you go in for how long? About three minutes. Oh, so yeah, just very yeah. quick. Very oh, quick. Okay. Some people push that to five minutes, eight minutes, uh, 10 minutes, but I keep it at around three. I don't need to prove myself in that. Oh, shit. I, I thought the ice baths were like something you do like right after exercise or something to 
to sort of cool everything down. But you're saying that the morning, it's a great way to wake up and, and just shock your, your nervous system in the morning also. People people do it after exercise for different reasons. Okay, You, mm. you can do it uh, with a certain protocol for fat loss as mm. well because it activates something called brown fat. Ah. Um, but uh, in the post-exercise part, um, if let's just say you're an athlete and you train, um, say, five days a week, six days a week, but you train twice a day, mm-hmm. which like which actually a lot of athletes have to do mm. because they have to practice their skills all the time. Yeah. They would uh, they are the ones who would get into the ice bath or do contrast, which is ice bath and sauna, mm. um, like going back and forth a few times uh, after training yeah. because it helps with recovery. Uh. Um, so they so they're ready to train again. But the issue with that is if you're just training for regular fitness, you actually don't allow your body to finish the recovery uh, process okay. in terms of like building strength. Um, so if you're just training for like everyday health, it's better to separate when you do the ice from your exercise. Uh, yeah. So I have a longer period of time between. Yeah, it's just it's just a different game that you play, right? If you're playing, if if you're a high level athlete and you just want to be ready to practice again in a few hours or the next day, it's more important that you are able to do the practice well mm. than it is for you to get like a little bit stronger, if that makes sense. I see, I see. Yeah. Okay. So, so then what's the science behind the morning routine? Because you, you, it's not say you do it like after a workout or something. What's mm. the science of like, or is it just the shock of having that low temperature? Well, it's the, the, the shock of it does, has been shown to help with things like anxiety. It has been shown to be good for your mental health. Mm. Mm. It can uh, also be a shock in a way that elevates your metabolic rate okay. uh, for, for the time to come uh, mm-hmm. after. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I do it mostly for, for my mental health, mostly to, it's kind of like when first thing in the morning, you mm. overcome something really challenging that you don't actually want to do that mm. makes you really uncomfortable. Yeah. Everything else across the day just feels a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, like been, the, it, it's like to make your bit Make your bed every morning yeah, in that rule. Which right? I do not do. <laughs> You're like, fuck making the bed. Like, I'm just yeah. going to jump into ice. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think about that all the time because people in my industry and like the productivity, like hustle culture stuff, it's, yeah. there's very much this narrative, right? Mm, of making mm, your bed. Yeah. I just, I don't give a fuck about making my bed. I just <laughs> I don't mm, care. Yeah. I understand the logic. Yeah. Um, I don't actually talk about like morning routines and stuff like that very much because I, I do them because they help me feel a certain way. Mm. But I also feel it's a bit wanky mm. to talk about. Like, mm. it, like I can't have a good day unless I do these seven things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I really do them because they make me feel a certain way. But I also think about our great-grandparents who built this fucking country mm. on Gaia toast and sweetened burnt yeah. coffee you know what I mean like they mm. didn't need these morning routines they just fucking got up and just went to work Yeah, you know mm, what yeah. I mean so yeah I've, a bit of a battle in my mind about this stuff uh, interesting I mean yeah. because I mean I find it quite interesting because you are the co-founder of Ritual Gym which is about <laughs> rituals uh. but here we are talking about like okay I mean to everyone to each his own right about the, yeah. whatever your ritual is it doesn't you don't need to listen to some influencer or fitness person talking about it. Yeah. But yours is quite, it's quite uh, unique, this ice bath thing. And uh, 
I mean, I, I drink water in the morning. That's my that's my ritual. Um, that I overcome. Uh, the difficult yeah. thing I overcome. <laughs> Which, How about you? What do you do? <laughs> uh, my box of vegetables. Like oh, yeah, I cut yeah. fresh fruit and vegetables like carrot, celery and into a box and if I don't have it, I feel a bit uneasy. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah. So in some way, yeah. that is my morning thing. Yeah. 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 And these these rituals do help us find order yeah. in life and help us feel a certain so, way. So have you always been someone like that where you have these things you do across the day that ultimately led to you founding a gym that you call Ritual? Or like what, what was the the story behind that? Actually, it started quite reluctantly. Mm. When I when I got into the industry, um, my first degree was in psychology mm. and I worked in counseling for a little while and I decided to go from there into fitness. Mm. And I remember... I remember this was what, like 15, 16 years ago, sitting uh, on the curbside somewhere in Bukit Timah, mm. smoking a cigarette with mm-hmm. one of my best friends. Her name is Reitzi. She was in law school at the time. And I realized that, oh no, I'm about to become like a fitness person. And I'm here mm. like smoking a cigarette. Like mm. we, we're hungover for, because of how much we were drinking the night before. I'm like, mm, oh no, I yeah. have to change my life now. I have to like make all these changes. So I like yeah. reluctantly gave up that and stopped drinking and uh, stopped drinking so much and started waking up early. Mm. And I guess one thing led to another because you start to feel the effects of the healthy habits. At that time, um, I had just finished competing in martial arts. I used to mm. compete in Muay Thai. I wasn't very good. Mm. Uh, it took me a while and a lot of pain to realize I wasn't that good. Mm. <laughs> um, and then I got into some uh, weightlifting stuff. Yeah. Um, so I guess it was easy for me to lean into the healthier lifestyle because once I started to change the habits, then your performance goes up. Yeah. And I just rode that for a while. Um, but I was never like super fanatical about any of it. Mm. Um, but I developed a discipline around it maybe maybe like a year and a half, almost two years ago okay. um, because I was dealing with my own issues across COVID. There's several things that happened mm. and I started to have some mental health issues, started to have some anxiety. Uh, it got quite bad. I ended up in the hospital for a couple of weeks mm. and to sort of build myself out of it, <clears throat> I took a look at my life and I was like, well, being in this industry and having studied this stuff, um, got my master's degree in the exercise stuff and just like took a really sort of scientific approach to my understanding of it. Like I had mm-hmm. all this knowledge, but I wasn't really applying it to my life. And I'm like, well, if I do a fair assessment, yeah. I'm not really doing as much as I could be doing to organize my life and my thoughts and my mental health. So I started getting a bit more disciplined. That's why I am now the type of person that has a morning routine. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm very protective of my sleep and all that stuff, yeah. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. And then the starting of the gym ritual? Wow, that was almost 11 years ago now. 11 years ago. Because from what I understand, um, it's it's a mm-hmm. 30-minute in-out, uh, high-intensity, what is the other high I? High-intensity interval training. Interval training, mm-hmm. yeah, hit. Um, you go in, you don't need any any equipment, any of your own clothing. You exercise, all the exercise done barefoot. And it's targeted that 30 minutes you come in, bust your ass, you, and yeah. you move out, right? Yeah, we give you clothes and all that. Yeah. Mm. We tried to build something that provided that provides the ultimate convenience mm. and the ultimate efficiency. Mm. Because the number one reason why people don't exercise is because they say they don't have time. They don't know how to fit it into their busy schedules. Mm. Yeah. So we wanted to build something. We run a session every half an hour. So it's small enough 
where you can probably fit it into your day at some point. Mm. We run a session every 30 minutes all day long. So literally, you know, after this podcast, you had no intention of working out today, but you can show up exactly as you are mm. and you don't need to bring your gear, your shoes or anything. Yep. We give you clothes, you can do your workout. And we wanted to create the experience where, you know, you, you book a 5 p.m. session, mm. but then your boss calls you into a last minute meeting. In two clicks, we want you to be able to cancel and rebook for the 5.30. No stress, mm. right? Because this is what you see in office environments. Like you would know this from the past, right? Like everybody's yeah. like rushing out of the office at 6.30 because I need to make my yoga class. Yeah, yeah. Bit of a silly thing, right? Mm. And before the ritual thing, I was running a personal training studio. We had a couple of outlets and uh, it was the traditional model of selling you one hour blocks. Mm. And this is a very interesting thing that happens if I'm your personal trainer. And I'll, we usually do Monday 7 p.m. as our session. When you show up at 7 p.m., sorry, if you, if let's just say you get called into a meeting at 6.30, you go, hey, mm. bro, can we do 7.30? I go, sorry, I can't. I have another client at 8 o'clock. Yep. So then suddenly you can't train until Thursday, mm -hmm. mm. which is silly because you're just trying to get a workout in. Yep. Half the time when you do make it to the 7 o'clock, Say you got two kids at home and you mm. got a deadline you're trying to meet. And let's say you're a bit hungover because you had a client dinner the night before and you only slept five hours. Mm. Most of the time, you're not really ready for a full one hour workout. Mm. The mm. stimulus that you need to be a little bit healthier, yeah. it can squeeze into like 20, 30 minutes. I see. So then you can see how the genesis of this idea for ritual came um, to make it efficient make it convenient and mm. we want to build something where I guess we haven't mm, been able to fully overcome this next part but like mm. if people start to value their time more yeah. and just look at it like if what traditionally used to take you one hour you can now do in half an hour mm. then mm. you can take that 30 minutes you get extra 30 minutes with your kid yeah extra yeah. 30 minutes with your wife at home extra mm. 30 minutes to whatever that's valuable. Saving mm. that time is worth paying for, mm. in my opinion. Mm. I see, I see. Yeah. So but you, you strike me as uh, someone who, um, it's not just about, you know, set up a gym, uh, work out, make money and all that. But there's a lot of uh, thought in terms of the philosophy of what fitness is, is as part of your life. There's a lot of thought into like, what's the data say about, about, you know, how long you need to, you know, reset your brain and get a good workout. Like, uh, can you, what, what do you think is, is different about your philosophy, your approach towards fitness compared to other people who, you know, uh, in, the, in the fitness space? Uh? I think, I think across the last 10 years, mm. services in boutique fitness, which is mm. what we do, we mm. run classes, personalized service, all that. The boutique services have gotten more intense, mm. heavier, harder, longer. And the result of that is the fittest 1% of the world, the Fitspo people that mm. you follow on Instagram, all super hot. Yep, yep. We all know them. Um, they have gotten so ridiculously fit, mm. like unimaginably fit, completely out of reach fit. Mm. Mm. Very inspiring in kind of a dark way. Mm. The result of that is 90% of regular human beings look in on that and go, well, I'm never going to be that. Yeah. That's crazy. You know this feeling, right? Mm. So then they go, okay, I guess these, these gyms aren't for me. Mm. So then as an industry, we're fighting for like quite a small group of people who think that I can, I can be that. Mm. Mm. 
we built Ritual to cater to the 90% of people who feel like, well, I, I'm not going to be able to do that. We mm. want to, we've always just wanted to reach out to them and say, hey, come to this place. Yeah. Really, really bite-sized workouts. We're going to try and help you build consistency. You're not going to get pressure to change your life because mm. we understand you're busy. You've got all these other obligations. That's fine. Do this two, three times per week. There's going to be positive knock-on effects to everything else in life. Mm -hmm. The reason why I think that's important from a public health standpoint, literally in every single developed country until today, obesity, type 2 diabetes, um, hypertension, cardiovascular mm. disease, loneliness, anxiety, depression continue to rise. Mm -hmm. So I look, it's, it's a bit serious, but I look at my peers in the industry, other owner operators, other brands, and I go, as an industry, fitness, wellness, whatever you want to call it, as an industry that's supposed to be helping human beings live healthier, happier lives, mm. are we doing our jobs? Are we winning? Or are we losing this game? Mm. In my opinion, we're not winning yet. Mm. So I guess like philosophically, that was, the, that was what was underpinning it the whole time, mm -hmm. that I actually want to make something that people find usable. It's something like between 60 and 70%, depending on the country, yeah. of people with gym memberships don't use their gym memberships. Mm. We have the right intention as fitness consumers. Mm. We know we need to exercise. Nobody needs to be convinced that they need to exercise. Mm. But the services tend to not match um, what people's needs actually are. Mm. But I don't think that's on the consumer. I think that's the industry's fault, mm. right? Because I create these things that maybe can get you results. And like how many of us know people who've gotten great results at some of these really intense programs? Mm, mm. And then they yo-yo, mm, right? Yeah. Because they can't sustain it or they pick up injuries and it's not sustainable past a certain point. Yeah, I feel like that's really damaging to the people who really actually need it. They mm. just need something rational and sustainable in the long term. And that's, I guess, if I zoom out and think how is it we've been able to do this 11 years and outlast all the trends and all that, it's because we played the longer game mm. of helping people develop a deeper relationship with their physicality, a deeper understanding about the value of sustainable exercise and all that stuff. Mm. But, but was it something that early on you already felt it uh, or was it like you could articulate it to this level back then or was it along the way? Because 10 years ago, fitness was there but I don't think it was as, as how you say, as glorified as it is now. Uh, of mm -hmm. course, with social media and all. But I know you guys started, yeah, quite quite a way back. Was your thought process back then the same? Like, um, there is this gap, the services are not matching it. Or is it as you've seen other competitors, other trends come up, you realize, oh, what you have is quite special? No, it was, it was literally from the start, we were mm. trying to solve this problem. We were the first boutique fitness gym in Singapore. Mm. We were the, we are still the first in the world, I think, to build a whole business around 30-minute uh, workouts the way mm. that we do. We don't offer anything else. We were the first to do that. Mm. Yeah, first to run sessions every 30 minutes, make it super convenient for people, provide the clothes, all that stuff. Yeah, We were the first in mm. the world to do that. Because before that, you kind of experienced the problems that you mentioned just now. As a personal trainer, people mm -hmm. can't make it. Mm -hmm. Was that a big issue that you saw? Yeah, it was, a, it was a big issue. And also, like, I would we would be training people at whatever 7 p.m. Mm. and they're like halfway through the workout and they've paid for the hour. You know they've paid for the hour, the yeah. appointment's for one hour. Yeah. And you can just tell that if I keep pushing, they'll finish it. 
but they're going to be so tired that when they go home, they're like、mm. not present with their wife or、um, not present with their kid, or、mm. they're just a little bit too tired, and they're going to have to pay for it the next day. Yeah, yeah. I could tell it was broken.、Mm. Yeah, that's why、yeah. I only did that business.、Um, I think three and a half years. I did that business before. Starting、um, ritual, and just you mentioned the term boutique. Like to to the layperson, like like me, what is what differentiates a boutique gym versus a a regular gym? Yeah,、mm. the the boutique gym thing is as opposed to like a big box gym. A big、mm. box gym is just like a big open space,、um, and you got all the machines, and you do your own thing. Yeah, Sometimes、mm. in those big box gyms, you can get you can get a personal trainer,、mm. and those are basically the two services that you get.、Um, in boutique fitness, you try and. Take an experience, or you try and take、uh, a concept like a fitness class, and、mm. you create a whole experience around it.、Mm. Yeah, so it becomes a much more personalized service. You walk in, people know who you are. It's a much smaller、mm. space. It's more intimate. You,、um, if you, if they're done well, there's you know、um, enough effort gone into building a community there.、Mm. Um, not just the coaches know you by name, but you know you do stuff that inspires you to connect with other members and live this healthy lifestyle.、Mm. Typically, users in the boutique gym space, you get higher traction, I guess. So you're more、mm. likely to stick to your fitness habit because there's accountability built into the whole thing, and you kind of feel more special too. You pay a higher price, yeah.、Um, but when you feel that you walk in and people know who you are, you feel like, okay, I got to show up for myself and for these people because they're rooting for me too.、Mm. Yeah. So it,、uh, again, another noob question, because、uh, I think I'm even less experienced than you in gyms, right?、Mm. Um, isn't the concept of a boutique and a gym? You know the the whole business model of a gym getting more more people in. You know to to sustain the business and all. Doesn't that uh? It, because sometimes gyms get can get a bad rep for like you know they need to maximize members and、uh, at the same time, but you're talking about boutique being giving a more intimate experience for people. How does that balance with you know growing the size of your gym and?、Mm. Being, you know, giving even more intimate experiences for you. Yeah, I, I love the question because there's obviously a business background here. I understand, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand where、mm, you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, it's fundamentally a different model.、Mm. In sort of the the old sort of big box way of doing it, you kind of want to sell six thousand memberships for、mm. a place that can house six hundred.、Mm. Right, and then you have a really busy January and February, and then you never see those people again. Yeah, the resolutions, right? <laughs> from from a purely capitalist point of view,、mm. great business model,、mm. right? I think that was part of the genesis for boutique fitness stuff. Also,、um, people who really want to have a lasting impact、mm. and actually inspire change, and the model in boutique fitness is much different. It's You attract some customers in, and you try and keep them for a really long time by providing a really good service.、Mm. So instead of this churn,、um, you just want to play the retention game and keep people for a long time.、Mm. So it's not just results; it's the community as well,、mm. and it's the it's the other bits of value that that you provide.、Mm. Mm. I mean, building on that question, you know, one thing, even as we run our business, you know, with Folklory and all, there's always a threat that okay, if you don't capture the market,、uh, another competitor is going to come in and drown you out. So for you guys,、um, have there been competitors that have come up, tried to do the thirty-minute thing, like literally copy the the model? Not not the thirty-minute thing,、mm. uh, but other boutique fitness gyms where、mm. that provide different ty- different types of classes and stuff like that. That、mm. that, that definitely has happened.、Mm. Uh, we've outlasted a lot of them. I think there's a lot of room for、mm, coexisting.、Mm. I think.、Mm. 
what we've found over the years is, you know, after someone stays with us for two, three years and they get good results and all that, it's quite natural for people to be like, okay, like I have this level of fitness now. I feel sort of empowered about what my body can do. I feel connected to my physicality. Maybe, maybe I can go try something else out. And sometimes they do it like, I'm going to pick up rock climbing. Mm. And then instead of training at ritual four times a week, they train like two or three times per week. And then the mm. other days they go rock climbing, they go running, they go swimming, whatever, play tennis again. Mm. Sometimes people don't want to pay for two gym memberships and they go try something else. Um, because we've, we've been doing this 11 years, we have like longer term data than that. And we see how many people end up coming full circle and coming back to mm. us. And usually... Uh, the feedback that we get, because I'm a bit obsessive about that stuff, so I like to talk to clients about it. Yeah, They get the itch of variety, so they go and try. And when they get there, it shook for a while. Uh, and then they realize that, yeah, but the quality of coaching that we get at Ritual and the safety of it, the, su the sustainability of it, hmm. the convenience of it, um, they realize how important those things are once hmm. they go somewhere else. And, you know, six, 12 months later, they come back. Hmm. Unfortunately, sometimes they leave and they go do these really intense things, Get sometimes get like really, really great results, Yeah. but then pick up injuries, mm. right? And now they're like 42 with a busted knee and they got to go uh, do physical therapy for six months and then, you know, walk again, run again, and then come back to mm. us. Mm. And there's a bit of this journey of um, you can try to educate people as much as you want yeah. about the real value that you provide when you have a high quality service, mm -hmm. when you take it very seriously, um, safety standards and quality of coaching and all that stuff. But unfortunately, sometimes until people try what else is there and then they get hurt, then they come back around and they realize, okay, this is real value. Mm -hmm. I actually think this is worth mentioning because when I first got into fitness, when I was doing the personal training stuff, the personal training stuff helped me uh, sort of make ends meet because right? mm, rent mm. is expensive here, right? But what I was actually trying to get into was strength and conditioning, mm. which is basically athletic preparation. And the people I was working with uh, were, were pro-level, semi-pro-level fighters, MMA fighters, Muay Thai fighters, Jiu-Jitsu guys. And when you work in, with athletes, mm. If let's just say you're a swimmer and you come and train with, train with me and yeah. you do the, your exercise training with me, mm. if you get hurt during your exercise part of your training, you're never going to work with me again. Yeah. I lose my job. Yeah. Your whole team will never work with me because you got hurt in exercise. Mm. That's how seriously it is taken at that level when you work with athletes. But for some reason, that sense of responsibility never transferred over to commercial fitness because mm. no need, right? Yeah. And so it became a very capitalist game of how many people can I squeeze into this room? Mm. And sometimes over the years, to our detriment, I was very, very, I, like I drew a very, very hard line on that stuff. Like we're not going to go above a certain number of people in a session. And I don't care if you've got 20 years of experience as a trainer, when you come into our system, we've got a four-week training program. Mm, Three quarters mm. of it is online-based, but we have tests, mm. theoretical tests, and we have practical tests. And if you don't make it, you don't make it. Yeah. You, mm. you can't stay on with us in the long term. And I think, obviously, when you think about it from a business angle, I've, mm. I've created a bottleneck for the business, yeah. right? Because it's more difficult to, to 
um, get people ready to to take on a job when mm. you open a new outlet or whatever. But I think 11 years in, I can say it's been worth it because we're able to provide a certain level of quality mm. um, that mm. most places just can't. Mm. There's actually a bit of a, it's known in the industry when new players come to town, yeah. they steal our coaches. I was uh. just talking to, to, to some of our staff about it. It's a known thing because yeah, yeah. of how well-trained our people are. Mm. They try not to touch people at our management layer and above because at that level of experience, they understand they'd rather be on the side of the people pushing the industry forward mm. um, than to you know go help build the next thing using yep. the skill set. So they tend to um, try and poach the people who've been with us for like a year or two mm. um, and then just offer them big positions. Nah. Mm. Yeah. So, so like, um, I mean, one thing over the years, um, there has been trend after trend of fitness, right? Do you think that um, these trends evolve like very organically or you think it's reaching a level where people are just looking for ways to package new and sexy stuff? I think a bit of both. I think the new and sexy thing is, it is one option to try and make fitness stuff, um, try and make it a complete distraction. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily think that's, that's not a jab at people that do that stuff because for me, getting people moving um, is a good idea. Yeah. And if you get that through dance, through spin, through ritual, through yoga, it, I like power to you. Like just do anything that gets you moving more. Mm. Mm. But I think it's made my life harder in the last 15 years. But I really want to help people develop a deeper appreciation um, and deeper relationship with their bodies. Mm. I feel like I feel like if we can do that, people can, not to sound too cheesy, but people can deepen their why mm. of why they should exercise. Mm. And I think we've completely lost touch with that, right? Because we're, we're completely obsessed with convenience and luxuries and how comfortable I can be. I think that's great. It's mm. the best thing about modern society. But we've completely lost touch with the value of being able-bodied and mm. the impact that that has on our minds. And to a certain extent, the impact that the movement has on your mind is not even something we have control of. In, mm. in a sense that, evolutionarily speaking, there's a reason why we function our best and feel our best when we move more. Mm. If you just think a few generations ago, we were hunter-gatherers mm -hmm. and we needed to work for our food. So never mind the science, you just think about a natural system. You would want to reward the human being for persisting in that physical activity to attain the food mm. because that perpetuates the species. Yep. So it makes sense that when we move a lot and we accomplish physical things, we get washed all across our brains and bodies with these neurochemicals that make us feel great. Mm. And it's not just the pursuit and then the accomplishment, mm. it's also the community, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, there's room for us to understand if in like a group setting with exercise, we mimic the accomplishments of I've made the kill mm. or I've collected the sweet potatoes and we bring it back 
to our community and we share. Mm. And we get the dopamine, the serotonin, the oxytocin that ha- helps us feel like closer as people. Yeah. Like the whole cycle from deciding to do the difficult thing to finishing it, to celebrating it mm. with your community is so special in a way that people don't understand mm. until they experience it. And then once you start experiencing it, experiencing it people talk about it like an addiction. Mm. But it's just mm. us leaning into our biology, in my mm. opinion. Mm. So are you, are you saying that... Um you would want people to uh, exercise for the sake of, you know, feeling that connection to the environment and their own bodies, as opposed to for all the distractions that, say you go to a spin class and then it's like, and then and then posing for selfies and then taking, you know, wearing the latest Adidas clothes and all that. Yeah. That's all distractions well, from, from the I, I guess exercise. On my bad days, yeah. where... I'm not being a very productive member of society. I do mm. feel like that. Oh, okay. But I don't feel that that's the right way to think about it. Okay. Mm. I, think, I think it's important that people find ways to move. Mm. Um, and I know a lot of people that love those types of classes and yeah. I feel very, very happy for them that they've found that. And I think people should keep doing the stuff that they like. They shouldn't listen to my opinion of, mm. of, of where they should take their relationship with it. I'm just happy that they're moving. Mm. Mm. I guess what I'm saying is maybe people would like to know that they have the option of elevating their relationship with their body even further. Mm. I uh, have been giving some talks lately um, on topics like burnout and health span. And so I recently kind of got back into, into the data of all that stuff. Mm. And it brings to mind this one study where they, t- they took active people and they made them walk less than 5,000 steps per day mm-hmm. for a week. So it made, made them move much less than they wanted to. After just one week of moving less than they wanted to, they got a 31.2% drop in life satisfaction. Mm. Mm. From a different angle, a different study, they took active people again, and they increased sedentary time by 30 minutes. So made them sit down 30 minutes longer than they wanted to. So limited activity again yeah. for two weeks. Yeah. Over 50% spike in anxiety and anger. Mm. And almost a 70% spike in fatigue and exhaustion. Mm. And I guess for me, it's important that people think about what is the baseline they might be operating at if they haven't exercised in any real way in months or years. Mm. No judgment because I totally get it. Like you get it too. Like when you have a kid, mm. very difficult. And all I want to do is do, do the work that I love and then hang out with my family because it's so awesome to have that, right? So mm. I, I, I get it. Um, but we can actually be better versions of ourselves for all mm. the people mm. around us and the people we love mm. if we do some of this stuff. And I'm not talking about like doing crazy workouts. Don't even come to ritual. It's not about that. It's like yeah. go for a walk. Mm. Um, the recommendations for when exercise can start to have an impact on your mental health are literally just do something Mm. and if you can do something like three times per week Mm. for like 30 minutes like go for a walk go out in nature do some push-ups do some squats Mm. that's when you get the biggest impact when you go from doing nothing to doing something. Mm. Mm. But but was there a converse study where it took sedentary people 
and made them walk 5,000 steps a day and see at the end of the week, were they like, oh, fuck, I hate this shit. Um, was there... Because, I mean, ultimately what you describe is you're changing someone's routine to do something else. Uh, yeah, was there anything? I mean, I totally agree. I can imagine that. But I know at times when I stopped advertise, uh, exercising in the past, mm. getting started was like, oh, I really don't want to... And then I start feeling like pissed off. Mm. And like, Ugh. So just wondering whether there was any converse study. Do you remember what you felt like after the first workout? I mean, it was good. Mm. <laughs> That's the thing. There, there's yeah. another study I was just looking at. This is fresh in my mind because I just gave, yeah. gave a talk on this. They took people... This, this study was looking specifically at workplace burnout. Mm. And they were trying to figure out what type of exercise helps people um, feel less burnt out. Mm. And what they found was if you do... Uh, what was it? It was 30 minutes of exercise, low intensity, high intensity, doesn't matter. Just 30 minutes of movement, mm. three times per week. You're going to get a significant impact on how you experience burnout mm. in a positive way. Mm. After four weeks of this pattern of three times per week, um, 30 minute workouts, so 12 30 minute workouts, yeah. um, you got almost a 40% increase in feelings of positive well being. Mm. Mm. And a, a bit more than a 40% decrease in feelings of psychological distress. Mm. So they're about 40% less stressed out after four weeks of exercise. Mm. So I guess, and this is not crazy exercise, you know? This is like some people were just going for a walk or like a bit of a jog. Mm. 30 minutes, mm. three times per week, not even, not even very intense. But, but then, so, I mean, you, you, you have looked at all this data of uh, how fitness is important for people. Do you see... Um, certain unique, uh, you know, traits about Singaporeans or our habits and all that affect uh, our our approach to fitness. Like for example, one one thing I always say is like, if you want to eat healthy in Singapore, it's difficult to to eat healthily at hawker centers and then eat, eat cheaply, Right to eat healthy. Uh, I mean that's, that's that's what I've heard a lot and I myself have experienced. Uh, but in terms of fitness, do you think there's anything? Uh, special habits or anything unique about Singaporeans that then whether make it harder or make our approach to fitness different from other places yeah I think a couple of things come to mind one we're very hard working mm. we know how to suffer mm. we know how to suffer but we're also very tired tired we're very exhausted mm. uh. and the number of clients I've spoken to over the years who beat themselves up mm. psychologically mm. because they say, I don't know why I'm so fucking lazy. Mm. I know I need to exercise. Mm. And I'll sit with them and I'll go, well, let's talk about life. Mm. Let's mm. talk about mm. what goes on in your life. And they tell me like, I got this crazy job, 12 hours a day. Mm. Um, I got, and then I got client dinners a couple of times per week and I sleep four or five hours and I have to go drinking when I don't want to. Mm. Uh, I like to spend Fridays with my friends. Yeah. Uh, I have a sick parent at home, taking care of them, taking them to the doctor, this and that. Mm. Um, got two kids at home, you know, just more yeah. and more and more yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I go, well, if at the end of the day at 8 PM, when you haven't had dinner yet, and you woke up this morning hungover and you only slept four hours, is it fair to look at yourself and say, you lazy piece of shit, mm. can't get yourself to the gym, mm. you're fucking exhausted mm. for real reasons. Yeah. I think that that ends up shooting people 
in the foot because they have these expectations of themselves of, I know how to suffer. I can suffer. Mm. I can power through this. I'm strong. Mm. Um, because that's what we have to be because you grow up thinking that Singapore's got no natural resources, so it's on us, mm. <laughs> right? It's uh, people and what you can do. You got to work. Biggest resource. Yeah, people, you, you got to work hard. Yeah. You have to work hard. That's how we get raised. Yeah, and it ends up biting us, mm. and it ends up being quite insidious mm. because if people took a step back and they just realized you don't need to pressure yourself to have an overhaul of your whole life. Mm -hmm. You don't need to pressure yourself to have a ridiculous workout tonight where you lift weights and then go for a run and then whatever. Mm. Just do something. Mm. And if it can help people just calm down a notch and go uh, and become okay with just doing something today, mm. I would feel like that's such a win. If, mm. if people understood that the real magic in exercise comes when we can do it indefinitely mm -hmm. like real magic can happen when but, we when we can do it indefinitely like when you say magic you mean like uh mental health wise and, and yeah and everything like well the mental health is one thing um but there's something called health span as well mm -hmm. and it's it's like added nuance to longevity mm. health span is sort of like instead of just adding years to your life can you add life to your years? Mm. It's not my line. Someone else's line. Uh, but I thought yeah. it was encapsulated. I was like, what? Well. Yeah, that ice yeah. bath. Huh? This one, not, you up with this like one not mine. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do totally believe it because, uh, I mean, I, I used to suffer from, I still suffer from sleep apnea. And uh, for the longest time in my life, I never bothered to get it, you know, checked out and everything. But the moment I, you know, I actually got like, you know, proper checkup and the sleep machine and everything, it's like, Suddenly, I woke up and I, wow, I've been in, living in a cloud for mm. like most of my adult life, not realizing that how much of life I wasn't experiencing just because I my sleep wasn't great, you know. Mm. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's I think it's one of those things when, like, when you're talking about health and exercise and fitness, and all that people don't realize, like, you know, your body also has this shelf life, mm -hmm. and and if you're not maximizing or just using it to its full capacity. Mm. Uh, yeah, there, there's it definitely has effects on your brain and your well mental well being as well. It it's something like a fourfold higher chance of experiencing experiencing burnout mm, mm. if you have disordered sleep. Yeah, disordered yeah. sleep. Mm, so you're just not sleeping well mm, at night. Mm. If you have insomnia, at the most extreme case of not yeah. able to sleep, you have a two x higher chance of developing depression. Mm, mm. Yeah. Two times higher risk. So, in your like this past uh, ten years or past few years, do you see like um, it getting harder to convince Singaporeans to to uh, exercise more, or do you think that everyone is trending towards healthier living? Because the one thing that is on everybody's mind: cost of living is increasing, mm. more stress, more this. And I mean, even now, uh, I don't have a child yet, but when I talk about this with my, my wife, they're thinking, oh, oh, if we have a kid in future, when we have a kid, it's going to be a lot and something has to give. So mm. do, you, do you find that people are trending towards healthy or it's more polarized? Like the healthier are getting healthier, the not healthy are getting more unhealthy? I think my, the cohort of people that I look at is a mm. bit biased, but mm. from my view, 
people are starting to turn on to fitness much more mm. because they're starting to realize it's not just about how hot I look, how good I look in the mirror. Yeah. They're starting to realize how when I'm going through struggle, mm. um, this can help me feel like I can get through. Mm. And there's very, 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 very interesting research on that too. That, okay, in all kinds uh, of stressful situations, it's been shown that people who exercise mm. are better at tolerating stress. Mm. Mm. So when it comes to things like burnout or, or um, you know, feeling overloaded in life, too stressed out, people are starting to realize, not through data, but through action, yeah. that if I do something, I can effectively shift the goalposts of when and where and how I feel stress and burnout. Mm. And the data supports that. There's um there's actually a really interesting study you might as well talk about. Um there is something called a TRIA social stressed stress test, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm. It's a 15-minute test. And it's fascinating. They um bring people in and a participant walks into this room and there are three judges in front of them. Mm. And the first five minutes the, uh, the judges, by the way, they're trained to show no expression. Mm. First five, five minutes, um, they get told, okay, you need to craft a presentation. And it's usually about some sort of a job interview. Mm. And five minutes, they're writing on a piece of paper, trying to figure out what, whatever the hell they're going to present on. When that five minutes is over, the, the, they take away the paper, they take away the pen, and they go, okay, now talk. Mm-hmm. And then the participant goes like, oh, okay, starts doing his presentation. And again, the, the judges uh, are told to show no expression. They're trained to show no expression. And can you imagine how awkward that feels? Mm-hmm. You're talking, 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 talking. End of that five minutes, no feedback on what you just did at all. Then they ask you to start counting backwards from 1022 in steps of 13. One zero, oh shit, that's weird. Okay. <laughs> and every time you get it wrong, they ask you to start back from the top. Same, no uh, expression. Uh. What they're trying to do with that stress test is mimic social stress. Mm. Now remember, we're talking about exercise here. What the hell does that have to do with exercise? Mm. Actually, guess, right? In this, in this study, they were looking at frequent exercises versus infrequent exercises. How do you think they responded differently mm. after this 15 minutes? Those, those who exercised could handle the stress better. Mm. two times better two times wow there's something called positive affect which Mm. is basically your ability to get through life with a positive mood Mm. um, get through challenges with some positivity yeah people who don't exercise got double the drop in positive affect Mm. Mm. and that study was done uh, like you said recently Many times, oh, many times. The TRIA social stress test, you can look it up. I can send you the, the, the studies too. It's maybe ridiculous. we should do that to potential guests in future. For but actually, lab- I was thinking it would be very fun, very fun to <laughs> run that. Do that? <laughs> stress them out. Yeah, we just sit, me, you, Tristan, sit outside yeah. and then we just tell them, okay, tell us what you're going to talk about on the podcast <laughs> and take away and then just see what happens. Yeah. and oh. But, you know, it sounds abstract when you think about it in terms yeah. of a study, mm-hmm. but we... It, it makes sense, right? Like you, mm. if you can build stress tolerance, you can build resilience to stress Mm-mm-mm. if you do difficult things. Yeah. Mm. Like, don't you find in life when you meet people who've really been through some shit, mm. 
they just have like calm in the storm energy. They just know how to get through to the other side when there's chaos going on. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not a foreign concept. It's mm. just that people don't associate exercise and difficult exercise with, with mm. stuff like that. And that, that kind of, it's almost like um, something that I've realized as well for anyone who's running their own business as well. There's a certain level of uncertainty and risk that you live with every day that anyone who's not running their own business or a salary job, they don't understand. And uh, when you tell them that, oh, there's this risk or this whatever problems they're going through, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you deal with that. But to me, it's like, oh, it's just day-to-day part of the job. Yeah. Do you do sense that uh, having run your own business and, and your business, own businesses for so long, you also have this muscle that you've also trained to just be sort of like get through the storm when, when especially business crises and all that. Yeah, it took, it took a while. Okay. It took a while. I think for the first few years of doing it, I was quite young also. Mm-hmm. And the business got traction very quickly. Um, and we started getting attention in quite a big way quite quickly. Mm. So I was playing this catch-up game and trying to grow into the leader that I needed to be. But yeah, it took me a few years mm. uh, to develop that skill of being calm in the storm. Um, but yeah, so important. And I mm. I totally see as well uh, mm. what you're saying with my other friends who who are running businesses or started businesses. Mm. There is a certain amount of that that you need um, just to get through it. It's a bit crazy. Mm. And actually, mm. I think... No, I think I know I spent the first few years of the whole experience playing a bit of like victim mindset of like, mm. oh, why is my life so hard? Mm. Uh, why why is everybody expect so much of me and mm. all that? And then it takes some maturity to grow out of that and realize, well, nobody forced me to start this business, <laughs> right? Like yeah, yeah. I was the one who had the stupid idea, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so then you, I, it took me a while to learn to sort of rise to the occasion in that sense and take full responsibility for it and yeah. you just be you have to be okay right with yeah. like if people don't want to work as hard on it as you do mm. and people don't have the same amount of passion and drive on it as you do yeah makes sense that they don't right because yeah. they didn't start it mm. Mm. and it also it also is not fair to expect other people to understand it mm. and i think while that thought is important there's real risk of it being quite a lonely journey for mm. people that start and run their own businesses, especially mm. through crisis. It is, mm. it is. I mean, and you're in the space of coaching people, right? But there's no coach for for people running their own business mm. or facing their own, like, you know, cash flow issues in the company. And there's no coach for that kind of thing, right? I mean, have, but expensive. Expensive, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that defeats the purpose yeah. of like, Because your business coach. is so people-facing, I'm sure there were days where you just, inside, you felt like, ah. Oh, but you still have to face your customers. Mm. You still have to put on this this like positive, and you have to make them feel don't don't like uh, unload onto them, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. People have expectations of and not just the customers, but staff as well. And mm. people have expectations of how you should be and the energy that they hope to get from you. And mm. the truth is, as you guys know too, if you don't bring the right energy, you end up damaging the whole thing and then it's mm. your fault. Like everybody benefits from you bringing the right energy. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. But it's a tall task in hard times mm. to be consistent with that energy. Yeah. Because it's very difficult. Do you find like, you know, running a gym uh, and I mean, just looking at the whole wellness space, 
Uh, there's to, to me, like I mean, if you look at a business that say makes burgers or something, um, it's it is a product, and how you kind of live your life, as long as you can deliver burgers, um, that's that's your product. But being in fitness, uh, do you also feel a huge way? Like what you said, you know, people expect you to work out. Um, is that a a bigger issue in wellness where um, there's a lot of you know coaching on like how to be fitter mentally, physically? But there's a disconnect between how the companies and and the people actually run themselves. Yeah, I, I I've thought about this a lot in the last couple of years because a few things happened across COVID that really stressed me out. Mm, mm. I mm, someone close to me in my in my family got diagnosed with with late ish stage cancer mm. uh, towards the start of COVID. Um, I had my first kid at the start of COVID as well. Mm. And fitness business, we had outlets all over the world, all suddenly got shut down. And mm. this business that was just starting to like really mm, find its feet and about to start sprinting um, suddenly was falling apart. Mm. And then my grandma passed away, which was not a surprise. She was 94, uh, mm. but it was a stressor. And... With all of that going on, I wasn't really taking care of myself, mm. and I definitely was—I definitely am the guy in my groups of friends or in the family that people lean on when they need to talk about something, when they're going through something. Mm. And it was a very heavy load for me already, but I felt the need to play that role also for everybody around me to listen. Yeah, And... It w- but it was like, even though all that was going on, it was very surprising that for me, when I ended up in the hospital for mm. a couple of weeks, because at my grandma's wake, I started getting these headaches. Mm. And at first, honestly, at first, when it, when it, when it first happened, I was like, eh, quite fun, like, a bit like dizzy, kind of feels like I'm half drunk. <laughs> kind of feels like I'm half drunk. I, like, I was like really bad. Like, yeah, you know. but I was like, mm, oh, just kind shit, of floating. Man. And I didn't really pay attention to it. This was in October of 2021. By the time I got to January of 2022, um, so just a year and a half ago or so, um, it, got, it was so bad that I couldn't stay vertical, like mm. upright, uh, seated or standing for more than a minute or two. Felt like my head, my head was going to explode. Mm. Oh, man. And that's why they ended up putting me in the hospital because they couldn't figure it out. I was convinced that there was something wrong with my brain, like bleeding or something. I was convinced that I had broken my brain. Mm. And um, they kept me in there for two weeks, did, did every scan possible, yeah. and they did so well. The neurology team at um, NUH, they did so well. They really took care of me and they investigated so deeply and mm. they were also very supportive emotionally. They sat me down at the end of it and said, look, we've run every scan that we can. And the truth is, physically and structurally, there's nothing wrong with your brain. And this is great news. Mm. So what you have is something called vestibular migraine. You have a very serious case of it. And they, you know, listed out the, the list of common triggers, top one being stress. And we started mm. talking about what you stressed out about. And as I went through this discovery process with them, um, I was on like 15 pills a day. Mm. right and just to calm me down because at the worst of it i couldn't even get to the bathroom by myself right so i had i was so heavily medicated but once i started being able to talk about it i told them actually 
from months ago, I kept getting these episodes of like tingling up my spine and then up my neck and then it shot straight into a migraine and then short, short of breath, walls closing in, all that stuff. That's why I was convinced that, um, there was something wrong with my brain. Mm. What we found out over the next couple of meetings was that I was having panic attacks Mm. and I was having a panic attack like every three days. Um, I just, it was weird, right? Because psychology background, wellness background. Mm, So you think you understand these signs and I'm married to a psychologist, right? So I definitely took pride in being the type of person who could handle a a lot of stress. Yeah. But obviously, I was pretty shit at dealing with it, right? Mm. And uh, and then I started, I got out of the hospital and um, started on this process of my recovery, slowly titrated off the 15 pills a day and all that stuff. But mm. yeah, it was, a, it was a process. So it's a really long answer to your question about, mm. you know, wellness and fitness and is, the expectations. I had the expectations of myself to be mm. a certain way. Um, but I was doing a piss poor job at it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to to take it much more seriously for myself after that. And yeah. In, in some ways, you know, going back to what you said earlier, is it also, you, you know, we say about uh, not having enough, Singaporeans not having enough compassion for ourselves, right? Like beating ourselves up for uh, the stresses in life and things like that. Did you, do you think your experience also kind of like made you realize, hey, that's happening to me as well? That, that I wasn't having enough compassion for myself and, and, you know, giving myself enough time and space and all. Definitely. I also am remarkably bad at asking for help. Mm. And I think it, there was this, the turning point uh, for me was, there was, at the worst of it when I was in hospital, there was a few days where I couldn't help myself to go to the bathroom. And on the worst day, I could see the colors on my phone, but I couldn't read uh, the message, the text message that had come in from my wife. Mm. And she was trying to text me to console me, basically, for having missed my daughter's birthday Mm. while I was in the hospital. But I couldn't read it. Mm. And at the same time, I was very aware that I had this amazing uh, team of neurologists at NUH who were like, you could tell they were trying so hard and like Mm. they really, really, really cared Mm, mm. um, because they were, I don't know if they were worried or what, but like they were really trying to figure it out and they couldn't figure it out. And I realized in a moment there that, wow, I have one of the best medical teams in the world Mm. and so much love Mm. on this side. and. I, because I didn't take a personal responsibility of, in taking care of myself, I found myself in this position completely stuck and unable to receive love and unable to receive care. Mm. Uh, that was the moment where I realized um, I have to take this seriously and I have to make changes and I have to also hopefully share my experience and help people understand um, that there's a very, very deep reason, a very, very deep value to prioritizing your own self-care. Mm, mm. And I really, I really thought I was doing fine. Mm. I really thought that I was doing the right things because I was exercising and all this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but there's so much that we can do. And if we don't 
take it on ourselves to take care of ourselves, then we end up we end up messing up quite a lot mm. because we're not able to function in all the areas of life that mm, where where we should be able to contribute. Mm. And mm. I guess over time, I realized it's not even it's not even a lot of stuff. We're talking about a few habits a day yeah. can make an outsized difference. Mm. Um, and learning to communicate and talk about your problems. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, learning to share and learning to put some discipline around sleep. Mm. Learning to set aside time for meditation. I do Qigong every morning. Mm. I do breath work. I do the ice bath stuff. Mm. It really makes a difference. Mm. Yeah. It really makes a difference. So do you think it's um, also, I mean, because this is my own experience, like uh, when I need a help and going to find therapy and all, uh, yeah, there's generally as a, as a guy even, you know, uh, it was harder for me to, to find options of, of, you know, therapists that would talk to me about the things I was going through and all. And a lot of times it was more focused on uh, or as a couple, you and your wife, or even just for for your wife and all that. Uh, so there's just not just only the stigma that that uh, society places on men to you know be the strong person of the family, like the person to lean on, but institutionally sometimes it's 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 just not. It's just even when you're trying to find it or look for it, it's not always there. Do you find that that was something that also maybe contributed to to your experience? I think it contributes, that's a contributing factor to a lot of men's experiences, mm. but not mine personally. Because okay. the first time I did therapy was when I was studying psychology, because I mm. actually got very, very interested in it. Yeah. And I guess being married to psychologists as well, like mm. we talk about this stuff a lot. So it's not yeah. taboo to me, but I know it's taboo to a lot of people, but it's mm. good that it's becoming less and less taboo, mm. especially yeah. since COVID, um, because people are starting to realize the, the value of it. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's the part that I didn't mention when I came out of the hospital. I started doing very intensive therapy and I was lucky enough to um, find a therapist I could really get along with. But mm. also my wife introduced me to her because she is in the industry and she knows other therapists. Mm. So she had an instinct about who to sort of match me with. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was so important because there's so many issues with how I was processing the suffering around me mm. and processing um, all the pain or rather uh, the, I was avoiding processing all the pain. Mm. Mm. Um, and it was so, so impactful. Did you, did you feel the same with therapy? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I, I didn't do a lot of sessions, but even those few sessions I did, uh, yeah, there's just something that the experience of it uh, just opens your mind to 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 look at look at your own experience in a different way and all and gives you this different perspective, yeah. yeah. So, so I I was like yeah this is it's quite crazy that even my generation, uh you know growing up there was this stigma mm. against seeking help or for the guy to go like guys don't need this you know you just need to go mm. and like go I don't know go watch football or something yeah um yeah I I really felt like wow this is a very big aspect of wellness and health that uh, I never even knew about growing up. And now, you know, in my adulthood and, and, and having a kid and all, you want to make sure that uh, when you're look, your kid's looking at you yeah. in the eye, 
it's you that's there, you know? Yeah. You're there entirely. You're not like stuck in some other world because of, of the issues that you don't want to talk about. Yeah. So that's why to me, I, that I felt like, okay, there's this responsibility I feel now that I need to take care of, like whether it's your mental health or totally. yeah, physical health. I think totally that's very, agree. very important. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Totally yeah. agree. I think, I think, I think most people can benefit from mm. doing some therapy and you don't need to do it consistently all mm. the time, but mm. You know, with a certain set of tools that we all have as adults of how to deal with stressors mm. or difficult situations, and you try and try and try, and if you can't seem to mm, help yourself or fix the issue or deal mm. with it better after trying for a while, why not just reach out to someone who specializes in helping people get through that stuff, and then yeah. you see them for a couple mm. of months, you know, yeah. a few sessions, you pick up these tools, mm -hmm. and then they end up being able to serve you for like the rest of life and then yeah. and then you can stop and go back to life and then next time you run into an issue apply all the tools you know and now you've got a bigger tool set mm, mm. and if you run into issues again go see a therapist again you know and yeah. i think we should we should get comfortable doing that and i think mm. i think there's that but across covid i also realized even though we're such a collectivist society mm. um, being asian and all that that exists in our family sort of structures mm -hmm. right? and i really i really understand the value of that now having gone through this crisis and so many things happening mm. having like a really solid home environment not just with my immediate family but my parents and my brother and their mm -hmm. kids and my in-laws and uh, my wife's brother and their kids like yeah like and my cousins and all that like real deep like family stuff like mm. that's really important but in our professional lives and the way we go to school and then what happens when we start working, it's very individualistic. Mm. It's mm. very cutthroat. Mm. And it's very like, almost like, I, I, not quite I have to step on other people to get a leg up, but it's, you got to watch out for yourself. You got to take care of yeah. yourself. And I think, I think that can be quite damaging in the long run too, because, I mean, we have a loneliness epidemic now too, mm. right? And I think it's more, prevalent with guys and you know you mentioned football just now mm. and this is what guys tend to do when they come together yeah you watch football you drink beers yeah. and then suddenly nine beers in one of your friends <laughs> tries to fight another friend <laughs> and then you're like oh bro what's going on bro and then they're like slurring and they go oh my wife they're doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. lose my job and, and then all of this we've all, seen that. <laughs> we've all seen that i've been that person before also, me yeah. too yeah. me too but we have to get into those altered states mm. before we can talk about it and i mm. think this is an issue and i think generally like okay, if my wife is upset at me for not being there for her mm. to talk about something she can be mad at me but she has like six other people that she can reach out to to go talk about yeah. that too yeah and a lot of guys don't mm. and i think it's worth figuring out how to break down those walls i think I think community is a very difficult thing to think about because for a long time we got community from the kampong vibe, mm. social cohesion. Mm. We got community from religious institutions, but less and less people go to temple mm. or to mosque or to church. So mm. you don't get it there. Um, 
where where are we going to get it? Mm. You know, I think I think people need to put some intention behind developing those connections and those communities for themselves, mm. um, and do the uncomfortable stuff of having vulnerable conversations, talking about how you feel. Mm. Um, mm. But much easier said than done, right? Mm. Like, don't you find like past a certain age and enough suffering, and then you have kids and all that? Like, oh, okay. Now I understand yeah. the value mm. of this, but it yeah. takes us so long. Very long. Mm. Yeah. It takes us so Too long. long. Yeah. But but don't you? You know, earlier you mentioned that there's one benefit to building up your ability to take stress, which is kind of like a muscle in and of itself, right? So then, how do you draw the line between? I mean, muscles and stress only grow when there's resistance, right? So how do you draw the line between, like, okay, knowing when to kind of seek help? Uh, and versus like holding it in or maybe everything that comes up, seek help. Everything that comes up, seek help. Um, do you see that as a as the the darker side of um, prioritizing, you know, getting help for this sort of stuff? Like it, it reduces the need to build up your own resilience. Yeah, I think I think they go hand in hand. I don't think it's mm. either or. I don't think it's linear mm. either. I think I think it's important that people realize they have agency. Mm. To a certain extent, we are in control. The stuff that we can do to increase our resilience to stress. I view something like therapy as one of those tools as well. Mm. You're, you're, you're learning to manage better. And uh, yeah, so I think they go hand in hand mm. um, more so than like opposing things. I think what you're alluding to is something I think about though, like mm. almost like I'm going through this stuff. Can I make it your problem? Mm. Right? Kinda. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it has to be viewed as a personal responsibility to solve it and um, or to get yourself to a place where you feel better about it. Mm. Um, but leaning on experts to help mm. you with that. It's kind of like if you go to a doctor when you're sick because you, you know, you tried the herbal tea and this and that and you're mm. still not better than you go to the doctor. It's kind of the same, right? Mm. It's kind of like, uh, when you say seeking help, I, I like the way you're saying that it's you're arming yourself with the tools. Yeah. It's like you go to a, you, you can go and exercise on your own, you can go and do it yourself, go run in the, in the fields or something. But you get a personal trainer who guides you and mm -hmm. tells you, hey, maybe you try this, try that and mm -hmm. this, there's a better way to do it. And then you can, you can still go back and run on the fields and, and do but it you how do you do it want. with a bit more knowledge. Yeah, you go to yeah. knowledge. So, I, I think that's the the thing about seeking help, you know, whether therapy or mental health is that um, a lot of times, yeah, like like from my experience, I didn't need to keep going, you know, the therapist, but just a couple, a few experiences and I felt, oh, okay, it helped me see things from a different perspective. Mm. That's, a, that's a perspective that I never thought of in spite of everything I was reading and all, you know, and then it gave me this tool that, okay, if, if something, if I ever encounter something like that again, there's a way to work around it. There's a way to uh, navigate my relationship with my wife or, you know, to talk to to someone about it, being vulnerable without uh, feeling like I'm uh, being a victim and everything, mm -hmm. you know? So, mm -hmm. so it's those tools that, yeah, that I think uh, we miss out on when we yeah. say that, oh, we should just deal with the problems yourself and not seek help. Because even when cooking, right, I will mm. watch a video on how to make carbonara. Yeah. And then and I you know how to do it already. You know how to do it. You know everything. Yeah. But just... But I, had to, I had to watch a video to do it. Yeah. You know, like, I could read it. I could be like, okay, you need guanciale, you need this, you need this. 
But I still watch the video to understand and then I'm like, oh, now I can do it uh, and it can translate over to other pastas, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, speaking about things that you think about or, or stuff that, I mean, I've been thinking about lately because, uh, you know, there's one thing about, there's this movement towards like, you know, exercise to, to the level of detail that, you know, the layperson, if you want to find out what exercise is good for you, you can find so much online. Mm. But then when I look at my extended family, right, there are people who are in their 80s. There are people who are in their 90s. Granted, okay, they might not be in the best of health, but the older I get, the more I think like, if you can make it to 60 plus, right, that's an achievement already, you know, because you see people just dying at any age. Then I think, okay, there there's this generation where exercise was never part of their life. Mm. Um, uh, do we have, I mean, a lot of the exercise that we are doing now, a lot of food we are eating, there's no generation before that where, you know, they can tell the effects 50 years later. So sometimes I think like, oh, uh, should we be exercising this much? Are we just wearing our joints out? I look at my uncle, he's like 85, never exercised before, but now he's still walking. Or like Trump. Yeah, Trump and I think Trump had this one philosophy where everyone, your energy level is a battery. Um, the more you exercise, the faster you use it up. <laughs> Sometimes I think about it, I'm like, oh, does he have a point? Because... Uh yeah, like now you know Singapore is aging. You're seeing older people everywhere, and sometimes you look at older people. You're like, oh shit, you're seventy six. Oh shit, you're eighty one. I'm guessing you never did like um a squat before in your life. You know, yeah. with like weights. So does that? Does no, that... I find it. I find it. I find it ridiculous some days. Yeah. That what I do for a job mm. is create spaces where it's socially acceptable to physically exert yourself. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> that's how much we've how do you say, diluted or sanitized yeah. our outside world? Yeah. Because we're not allowed to go, or oh, it's weird if you're out there running around on the street mm. on Orchard Road doing crazy stuff. Or like stuff. walking just crazy distance, you know, walking 20 minutes to your location or something. Mm. Yeah, it's because we've, we've, we've sort of whitewashed everything that happens outside and then we've added all these conveniences. And mm. I used to think a lot about my grandmother who used to live with us mm. and she I think at that time she was in her 70s um, she wasn't living with us like full time but she would come and visit and she would walk like a kilometer to the wet market mm. and then walk back and when she would get back she would be sweating yeah. with her bags of mm. stuff that's why they didn't need to exercise. It was just mm. part of life. Mm. Uh, she never point. ever would have made a comment about, oh, so tired. Oh, so mm. sweat. It was just life. And there is data on that. Um, the walking thing and getting older. There was a pretty large scale data on people with average age of about 55, 56. And they followed these people for a 10 year period. And they followed how many of them died. And they broke them up into four groups. The first group was people who walked less than 4,000 steps a day. Mm-hmm. And um, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, group four was people who walked 12,000 or more steps per day. Like, so super active versus um, really not active. In the group that, walks, that walked less than 4,000 steps a day, 64% of them died within the 10-year period. Mm. at the other end of the spectrum the people who walked 12,000 steps or more per day 9% died in that Mm. 10 year period that's a 7 fold difference this Mm. is observational data so you Mm. can't say that 
walking equals living longer. Mm. But you can probably infer with some confidence that living an active lifestyle has an effect on how long you live. Mm. Actually, I mean, yeah, that is a, a yeah. I mean, when you phrase it like that, it does make sense. Because right now, my mom lives with me and my wife. And for the longest time, we've told, okay, mom, just don't do any housework. You just here, you relax. And she's, I, I think there were a couple of times she said, if I don't do housework, if I don't move my arms, I'm going to lose it. Lah. And then slowly, I start seeing the benefit. And even now, as much as we order groceries online, once in a while, she'll go to Shengshong and like buy fruits and come back. And she carries it in two plastic bags. Mm. And I'm like, mom, why are you carrying the apple? She's like, no, it keeps me strong. Then on the flip side, my wife goes to like some training and she said, oh, I did a farmer's walk today. I carried two kettlebells. Same thing. Then I'm like, oh shit, my mom was doing the farmer's walk back from Shengshong. You know, like you carry these two weights, you tra- she's training her core and she comes back sweating and like like what you say, like, it's, it's the equivalent of a workout. Yeah. And then it has made me more open to, okay, my mom, she kind of needs to do this because it's what kind of like she's been doing for years and if you take that away from her, it's then her identity also, she's a, she's like a, a home, uh, a, a mother in every sense of the word. Lah. And then I realized, oh, actually it gives her joy. Uh, it gets us fruits. Um, yeah, so, so why not? Uh, and I think that is something that, yeah, if I look back at all my older relatives, they had jobs where they were on their feet a lot, they were walking a lot. Ah, okay. That is interesting. It's And the data backs that up, by the way. Mm. If you if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm. Um, it's something like after the age of 30, you lose like 3 to 8% of your muscle mass mm. every decade. Mm. And then past the age of 50, it's like 1 or 2% per year, mm. just on average. But if you use your body and you stay active, yeah. you can really drastically slow that decline. Yeah. Mm. There's... um. There's a, res- there's a bit of research from a Brazilian group a few years ago that investigated something like really trivial but actually very important. Your ability to get up off the ground mm. with ease. Oh, the, the, from sitting to... From, yeah, from, yeah from, from I think it's down on the ground mm. all the way up. And they had a rating system um, for people that it was very easy for and people that it was very difficult for. And... It, I think it was a 10, they had like 10 levels to yeah. it. And when you compare the people who had the hardest time versus the easiest time, and these were people between age like 50-something to 80-something, right? Mm, so people who mm. were older. The people who had a harder time, the hardest time getting up off the ground, had like a five or six-fold higher likelihood of dying. Mm. Mm than the people who had an easy time getting up off the ground. Mm. That's how important staying active is. And that's how important it is to recognize that if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm. Yeah. So, so now like when your family, anybody wants to order food, do you tell them, guys, our ancestors were hunter-gatherers, let us walk three kilometers to get the mee goreng and the fried rice mm. and come back and, you know, sit down and enjoy the meal as a community. While sweating. I really do think I really do think we have an issue uh, with living rugged lives. Mm. I think mm. we need to get much better at doing that. We need to become much better at suffering sometimes. Mm, still yeah. enjoy your aircon, still yeah. enjoy the sofa and watching Netflix and all that. Mm. But just do some suffering every day. Just mm. be it. It's going to go a long way. Yeah, Yeah, I I think another important thing that people should realize is 
the people that get the greatest effect in terms of health span, longevity, whatever you want to call it, are the people that go from really not good to not bad. Mm. So there's something called VO2 max, which mm. is a technical thing. It's a measure of cardiorespiratory fitness, mm. which is a fancy way of saying heart, cardio, respiratory, lungs. Mm. It's a measure, it's a, it's a metric of your heart and lung health. Mm. It is, as far as health metrics go, it is the one most closely associated with how long you'll live. Mm. When they look at and like large-scale studies, like over 100,000 people, when you look at people in the bottom 25% versus people in the top 2.5%, mm. it's, it, the, the risk of dying in a 10-year period is like five-fold higher at the bottom 25%. Mm. five-fold higher. But when you go from the bottom 25% to the next rung up, so 25 to 49%, um, still, so still like below average, mm. you get a 50% reduction in mortality in the next 10 years. Mm. Meaning you're like half as likely to die in the next 10 years if you just go from low fitness mm. to okay fitness. Mm. That's why... I feel like it's really important for people to understand it's not about getting the crazy workout in. It's not about like changing everything. It's literally like you do something, you know, like double the likelihood yeah. mm. of having good outcome, uh, mm. good outcomes. Yeah, mm, I see. So, so all these studies and all, um, is it stuff that is public that you can share that yeah, we can, can also send, put can, in episode? Yeah, I can send you all these links. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, do you do you talk a lot about this this stuff? Like, where where would like our listeners go to find you and and hear more about this sort of stuff. Yeah, I've been, I've been giving uh, some talks about this lately because mm-hmm. people are very much more interested in this stuff and the mental health stuff and how exercise and your daily habits can impact your mental health yeah. and your health span. So I've recently just started doing that again. Um, I am considering starting a podcast oh, where I talk yeah. about some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, inside the gyms, when I talk to clients, this is the type of stuff that I like to try and get out there. Um, I'm not so good on social media, but I've been trying to be more consistent on LinkedIn mm. um, to get these messages out there because I feel like it's important. And like, if people have the time to just stop and think about it yeah. for a couple minutes, we got enough options here that we can kind of latch on to, to deepen the reasons why we do these things, right? Because mm. sometimes it sounds very trite to people when I say things like just just get off the train one or two stops earlier and then finish walking the rest of the way. Mm. Like, if you don't want to do 10,000 steps, that's fine. Just get to like 6,000. Yeah. Mm. You know, and you don't have to do it all in one shot. Just do it across the day, mm. right? Just mm. choose to have lunch somewhere a bit further away. Yeah. And have an accountability buddy at work uh, who you say, hey, want to try this out for a month? We just mm. try and hit six, 7,000 steps, pick a number. Yeah. And then now it becomes a fun thing, right? Mm. And I've done some of this stuff uh, with like uh, corporate wellness projects because that's the other thing that we do. Mm. Um, uh, we call it ritual wellness where we go into to, um, offices and help them develop a wellness program. Mm. And sometimes when they're really high intent and they really like want to have change, this is one of the things that we do, like help people form these little groups mm. where they keep each other accountable. Mm. because of all the positive mood associ- uh, like the positive effects on mood mm. uh, and your mental well-being and all that stuff 
And because you, you get all these neurochemicals that make you feel good because you're being more active mm. and you're doing it with friends, it starts being fun. Yeah. And once mm. it starts being fun, and it just becomes the thing that you do and that you want to do. Um, after a couple of months, it's just how you live your life. Mm. And you don't get uh, what? No, then that's part of the community that you try to build at work, right? Mm. At, at Ritual, where yeah, yeah you you see the people, the same people every week, week in week out, and it's sort of holding each other silently accountable mm-hmm. for each other's goals, mm. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think it's necessary because we live very busy lives. Mm. We have the right idea, but. To, to see it through by yourself is a bit difficult. You yes. you don't get any people who put the fitness tracker on their fan and you know like log the steps. You know? <laughs> the dog, put it on the dog. <laughs> I got my six thousand steps. In. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. but but yeah, I mean that was awesome, man. Like, yeah. uh, I think there's there's definitely I think anyone listening to this could glean a lot from it if you can put those links. That would be super great. Yeah. Uh, and and what where what what would be your handle to look for on Instagram and LinkedIn and uh, underscore Ian Tan mm-hmm. on Instagram on LinkedIn. If you just search for Ian Tan, you will find me. Oh, um, sweet. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Sweet. But yeah, awesome. thanks for opening up about uh, you know mental wellness and and even your own uh, struggles in your journey. I think uh, the most important thing is that people yeah they see you as the inspiration of fitness world, but also you know I think your message about mental well-being and, and, and having compassion for yourself. I think that's something that people can take away from today as well that, that will be very helpful for them. Yeah, thanks yeah. so much. I Thanks so much for having me. I was encouraged by a couple of friends to share the story because at first I was mm. a bit embarrassed, right? Like mm. fit, fitness guy going through all this mm. stuff. But yeah. I see it now. I see the value in sharing. Mm. Um, yeah, so thanks for having it's, me. It's great, man. And now I'm seriously thinking at some point, how can I fit an ice bath into my... <laughs> My house. We put one here. <laughs> like, one here. They would just be here all day. Just be here. <laughs> just be here. <laughs> I have a I have a friend that sells uh, ice bars, really really nice uh, ones. Not not the fridges. Oh, the fridge. No, uh, I like they, the fridge. Like I mean, yeah. just like our, our studio, right? It's DIY. The fridge yeah, is yeah, a yeah. nice thing. Like the the nice aspect to it, mm. <laughs> <laughs> But cool, cool, oh, awesome. Cool. So so I mean, the the last part of our podcast is always our one shook thing. Yeah. Um. So Terence and I can go first. So you still have a few more minutes to think of something. Mm. Uh, Terence, you have your one show thing? Uh, I do. Actually, it's uh, quite related to things we're talking about. Uh, but um, mm. about a year ago, uh, the CNN news anchor or journalist, uh, Anderson Cooper, I don't you know the, the guy with the white hair and everything. Mm-hmm. He did, uh, he created a podcast under CNN, uh, but it's his own personal experience with dealing with grief because he lost his, uh, I mean, he lost his, dad when he was younger his brother committed suicide in front of family and his mother uh, who's quite a you know a rich famous person in american society she passed away like uh, right before covid or something um or I, maybe earlier than that i can't be sh- i can't be certain but basically he realized that everybody in his life that knew anything about him before he was an adult and, and all uh has you know moved on already la. Mm. So he created this podcast to sort of uh, process and understand the grief that he was facing and why it molded him and shaped him into becoming a war zone, you know, uh, journalist and everything. Because he, I think he was, he said early in his life, he was going out to these war zones to, to because that's where he felt that sense of grief and loss in people and he didn't feel awkward having to tell people about it and all. So this podcast, in his, in in a way, is now all these years later, he's become a a dad himself. You know, with his partner, they have two children, and like what I was mentioning earlier, he felt it was very important that 
he comes out and talks about his process of grief and 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 comes face to face with it and just understands it as part of his identity, you know, mm-hmm. being a news anchor, being a, a gay parent and, and things like that. So yeah, it was a very interesting uh, series. Uh, he talks about his, his experience. He talks to Stephen Colbert mm. about Stephen Colbert's uh, losing his dad and his two brothers when he was like 10 years old. And yeah, so all this... All these experiences of um, people processing grief and how difficult it was for them to come out and talk about it, or even their own personal uh, mental health struggles as a result. Uh, I thought it was a very interesting listener. Mm. And then you wouldn't expect that from a war zone journalist from CNN to talk about these things. But he did it in a very, uh, very, very classy, very. Um, Entertaining way, la. So it's yeah. a it's a like season of yeah, it's a season of podcast. Oh, and I'm gonna, but he I'm has go- listen to that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he has gone on Stephen Colbert show and talked talk about, about it. it. And and yeah, they talk about their their grief and the process of grieving very openly as well, la, which mm. is quite cool. La. Yeah, oh, that's yeah, awesome. that's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, my one show thing is a uh, is actually news that there's this Singaporean footballer, woman footballer called Danielle mm. Tan. Mm. who is the first Singaporean to play in a European league. Uh, she joined Borussia, Borussia I believe, Dortmund. Yeah, Borussia Dortmund last year. Uh, and she debuted. Uh, and recently, she just got a hat-trick mm. um, during Borussia Dortmund's uh, match against DJ K. Spughurton. They won 13-0. <laughs> but she's got three goals. Wow. And that's awesome because... Um, yeah, like, uh, I think we, there's so much, I mean, globally, there's more attention on women's sport now. But I think even locally, there's a lot more attention on sport. And the mm. uh, Singapore women athletes have been doing, like, amazing. Mm. Uh, Shanti Pereira, Danelle Tan, just to name a few. And, like, yeah, like, scoring a hat-trick, this is awesome. Uh, while the the whole, I mean, even FAS, I think recently there was some controversy about how the president had a walkover. And yeah. you look at the state of men's football, you're like, ugh. Mm. But, yeah, there's mm. someone in Europe holding the Singapore flag. It's awesome. Kicking ass, literally. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Ian. There is this Netflix series called mm. Live to a Hundred. Mm, it's about mm, mm. it's about blue zones. Yeah. And blue zones are specific areas around the world where people live seemingly effortlessly past a hundred. Mm. And uh, this dude who's been studying them for like twenty years um did this series to try and find the commonalities, the patterns of like how these people live their lives. And it's, you know, in the rural areas of Okinawa. Mm. It's in this island called Ikaria in Greece. Mm, mm. Um, I think there's a place called, I think it's called Nakoya or something like that in Costa Rica. Mm. And um, Sardinia um, in Italy and one or two others. And it's fascinating because there really are commonalities that he found and it's they all stay physically active, mm. but not in a structured exercise kind of way. They just have to walk a lot and do yeah. a lot of manual labor. Mm. They all eat natural, unprocessed foods, mm. just whole foods, lots of greens, lots of fruits, um, lots of legumes, that sort of thing. And they all, not all, but most of them have a very clear sense of purpose. And in Okinawa, they call it ikigai. Mm-hmm. And there's a term for it um, for uh, those people in Costa Rica as well. I can't remember what it's called, but it's the, it has the effect of you wake up every morning and you know your purpose in mm-hmm. life. And I think that's really important too. So that really resonated with me. Um, and the other thing was social connection mm-hmm. and community and coming together and 
in all these places, they had like multi-generational homes um, and they respected the elders and they saw them as sources of wisdom versus whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was fascinating. It was a really, really nice series. I remember seeing a TED Talk. I don't know if it's the same guy who did but if you say that someone who's been studying this for 20 years, I think uh, it's in that city of Sardinia where in the bars, they have pictures of old people because they're like seen as like heroes, mm. you know, and they are celebrated. Mm. Uh, and I thought that was fucking crazy. And also in Okinawa, there's, I remember during the TED Talk, they mentioned there's this group of six women all above 100. They've been having lunch together every day for 97 yep. years. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. It's, it's fucking... It was, it yeah. was that also... Yeah. They, I, I can't remember the name of the term, but they have a term to describe this community thing where they put intention behind um, being there for each other. Mm-hmm. It Ooh. actually... It actually... Uh, not this series, but something similar... Uh, from a book that I was reading a few months ago inspired my wife and I to mm. start um, every Sunday in the late mornings. Uh, we pull a small group of our really close friends. Some mm. have kids too. We pull them together and we just cook brunch. Mm. And it was also good timing because everything is so expensive in Singapore right now. <laughs> so we just go to one of our houses and... Good brunch. We come together, we put some intention behind having a community that is not related to the work thing, not related to anything else. It's just a group of people who like each other, love each other, coming together mm. um, to share a meal and to have a good time. And I think, I think I forgot to prioritize that for a long time. Mm. Um, and it's, it's so funny because we get to Friday, Saturday, and sometimes I forget that, oh, yeah, we have to arrange the Sunday thing, like whose house is it going to be at? Mm. And there's always a bit of inertia. And I'll talk to my friends in that group, like, okay, who's in, who's coming? Because sometimes mm. we've got things to do. And there's always a bit of inertia. But then when we show up there on Sunday, like, we love it. We yeah. love it. And then the kids love it. And then we're so happy. Nobody looks at their phones. And we're just enjoying the time and the conversation. It's mm. great. Yeah. Oh, shit. That's awesome, man. Yeah. yeah. But cool, man. Yeah. Dude. Cool. Thanks so much for joining us. This Thank you so much. Thanks and, so much for having me. And yeah, uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we'll talk to you all soon.